On this episode of Athletic Training Chat, we are on with Dr. Matt Coots, who is all over the research around leadership and athletic training. And so in this episode, he details a lot of his journey to get to where he is through his research and how it's kind of turned into this passion of his mm -hmm. that you didn't really see his career going this path, but ultimately opened it up. Uh, there's so much to take away from this. We are definitely going to need to do a round two, especially after getting to read his book. Uh, this is going to be fantastic for anybody that's looking to build on some leadership basics and get some more ideas. Um, very in-depth and detailed information there. Forgot to mention Happy National Athletic Trainers Month. With that, thank you everyone who's been a part of the podcast. Listen to the podcast. We have some stuff coming up. Trying to get some final details on it. Hoping to get it out here in the next week or two. Please stay tuned for that. Thank you, Mueller Sports Medicine, for powering this podcast and supporting the entire profession. We can't thank you guys enough for what you do, so please check them out with all your ordering needs. And without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with Dr. Matt Kutz, um, who is a professor at Bowling Green University, among all the other things that he does that we will get into today. Um, with that, just a quick background, um, getting into my own work in leadership and things like that, read plenty of articles. Um, I'm hoping all of them, but I will have to go back and double check uh, by Dr. Coots and mentioned it to a staff member of mine who actually was under Dr. Coots uh, for his master's degree. So kind of a small world, how that all connects up together um, with that. But before I keep rambling, I wanted to turn it over to you to fill in a little bit of background and then we'll jump mm -hmm. into contextual intelligence, leadership and athletic training and wherever that takes us. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a, Fun stuff for me to talk about. So, uh, so again, Matt is he's call me Matt. Uh, don't you know? No Dr. Coot stuff, please. So, uh, so Matt's fine. And um, you know, I've been an athletic trainer for 27 years. Uh, my master's degree from the University of Toledo in exercise phys. My bachelor's degree in athletic training, Anderson University. And then um, the fun part and the neat part is the PhD is in actually in global leadership from business college. I actually went kind of deviated from the norm or disrupted the normal flow of, of most athletic trainers on that journey and uh, sure. found this neat space that absolutely has just been amazing. And, and uh, about your comment about all the research out there, just actually, I think today, uh, I just had a brand new article uh, published in the ATEJ on soft skills and leadership uh, for athletic trainers. So I believe I was told that's supposed to be, you know, before you know, print ahead of press or whatever. So it should be on online today. Nice. Um, so anyway, yeah, so there's some research out there that you haven't read yet because it's sure. just just coming out. But, uh, but, you know, that's something I love to do is, is researching and exploring the aspects of athletic training as it relates to leadership. And, you know, one of my, one of the things that I have just been so fortunate and blessed to fall into early on in my career was a love for leadership. And back you know, 27 years ago when I got into the athletic training uh, profession, there wasn't a lot of talk about leadership. In fact, most of it was clinical skills, establishing ourselves as a profession and all the things, which obviously are critically important and, and still critically important. And there's still confusion out there over what we do and how we do it and where we can practice. And, you know, that's, that's, those are normal growing pains, but uh, part of what I think the profession needs, part of what I think is really necessary for us to continue that growth and evolution, not only in our communities, but interdisciplinarily is the is the understanding that leadership skills actually do more for advancing the profession at the stage we are in now uh, as opposed to 30 years ago or so sure. um, and and that's and I, I think honestly I think we're a little bit behind uh, that in other professions growth and I think one of the things that we need as a profession 
is a little bit more forward thinking relative to leadership behaviors, leadership skills, philosophies of leadership, the practice and implementation and integration of leadership outside of our roles. ATs are the best that I know at leading in chaotic, turbulent times in their role, right, in their job. But what we don't do, and I actually some of the research that I've done actually begins to show that when athletic trainers step out of their athletic training role, they take off their leadership hat and they, they, they treat, at least from what we've seen, and again, it's just one research study based on my findings, but again, based on a lot of experience as well, I've noticed, and not many of my colleagues, how we talk about this, have noticed that athletic trainers seem to... Uh, treat leadership like a hat that they wear. And when they're in their athletic training space, they put the leadership hat on. And when they exit the athletic training space, they take their leadership hat off. And I think that's a part, big part of the problem. And, and that's where contextual intelligence comes in. And we'll talk more about that. But any rate, that's where, that's where I think uh, one of the things that we need to talk about comes from. And, and I think about the, uh, you know, the practice analysis, our role delineation study, and, you know, we're familiar with the five domains, you know, and we have domain five, which is, which is organizational health and well-being, um, you know, and, and this idea of the leadership stuff kind of falls in that domain, healthcare administration in domain five. Uh, but there's different tasks in each domain, and then each task has different knowledge areas and skill areas. And one of the things that I think we miss a lot, it's domain five, task one, item S, says that athletic trainers must, and must is an emphasis there, be able to demonstrate leadership that's appropriate to different situations and different people. And, uh, and that's kind of where I, where the space that I fill, and that's kind of the role that I play and is is getting athletic trainers to uh, expand their toolbox, expand their capabilities to the place where they can demonstrate leadership that's appropriate according to the different situations that they find themselves in, both in work situations and out of work situations. So it's both professional and personal, which I think is huge. And if we miss that, we're making a tragic mistake. And then also the different people they encounter. And, and, you know, it's one thing to lead a student. It's another thing to lead a colleague um, or an employee or to work with um, uh, um, even our supervisors, whether it's in our physicians we work with or whoever it might be. We need to have skills uh, that can transition between different settings and different people identifying their needs. And that's really what I talk about and what I like to research. And, and anyway, so I've talked long enough. It's your turn, Joel. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It gives me um, so many jumping off points. Uh, before we get into the contextual intelligence, just kind of a question, as you mentioned it, you know, in, our, in the domains and everything, you know, with the transition to an MSAT, you know, there are a lot of stuff to fit into a small period of time. Um, and this is also referring to my own personal experience. Like, do you see this as something that needs to be more of a focus within the athletic training programs, or is this something, or maybe it's both, you know, for people that are now in the profession, I've, I've only been in for 11 years, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And I, I almost remember a clear as day when my mindset like changed in yeah. the current role I'm in where I'm in that supervisory, you know, leadership role of maybe how, you know, maybe we shouldn't be trying to run our GAs into the ground or our part-time people should actually, you know, only work really fully part-time because that's all we can afford to pay them. But we can, you know, if we can't control the money, we can control the hours to make the money seemingly more worth it. And it was this big shift for me personally, um, but, and then even then starting this PhD program, like I know there's a lot of really good leaders and administrators and things out there that, you know, haven't gone through formal education around this and they do amazing things. But even reading some of this, I was like, I don't even like, how was I, I was just going blind because I just had never seen it organized in a way that I could actually apply it. Um, right. So long. Well, that's part of the leadership thing. Leadership is a skill like any other skill. Uh, most definitely it can be learned, but also most definitely certain people are better at it than others, just naturally. Sure. I mean, think, I mean, obviously we're all familiar with the sports context 
and, uh, and, you know, basketball and baseball, whatever it might be, you know, I can play the game of baseball. You know, I love the game of baseball. Um, I've got a little bit of skill at baseball. You know, I played in high school a little bit and played some old man, you know, these, these uh, Roy Hobbs leagues and things like that. And I like baseball, but there are other people who are naturally, you know, just way better at it than I am. And no matter how much I practice, I'm not going to be as good as they are. I can't make it to the major leagues. You know, I I mean, even if I practice every day, eight hours a day, I can get better at baseball, but not to the level where I can, you know, be playing for the Detroit Tigers. Um, But that doesn't mean I can't get better. I can't learn the same thing's true with leadership. You know, we, there are things we can learn. There are things we can get better. All of us, I think have an obligation as members of a professional organization, as members of a profession. Um, I think we have an obligation to our, our colleagues, our professional members and the communities that we serve, the patients that we serve, um, the interdisciplinary teams that we serve. I believe it is an obligation to practice leadership better than what we currently are. The question that you're asking, and this is really what keeps me awake at night. I mean, this is, this is, this is the issue of, all right, so I believe that. So where do we teach it? You know, I've, I've been in higher education now. I've been a program director. Um, I've been a clinical coordinator, uh, graduate faculty. Under, I mean, I've served in a lot of these different roles and capacities. And, and I know that athletic training education programs, be it at the undergrad level or the graduate level, they're under, they're under content stress, you know. Sure. And, uh, and there's just, you know, there's always something more we can learn. There's always something more that we should be thinking about something we should be teaching. I mean, just asking around, like, oh my goodness, I got to work this in. I got to work that in. And then you get the list of standards and competencies and you're like, holy cow, how is this going to happen? Um, And then you throw in stuff like, well, listen, do we really believe, I mean, this, listen, this is a philosophical, like I said, this keeps me up at night. I mean, do we really believe I mean, is this part of our core ethic as athletic trainers? Do we really believe standard, you know, domain five, task one, item S, that athletic trainers must practice leadership behaviors that are appropriate to different situations and people? I mean, it's in our role delineation study. It's an item that we have to demonstrate skills in. So it's there. Do we really believe it? I really believe it. I've been outside of it. I've been so fortunate and so blessed uh, because of the business uh, PhD and the athletic training experience in healthcare and, and the whole contextual intelligence thing that we'll talk about in a minute. I've been very blessed to be able to see outside the box, as it were, sure. uh, the athletic training you know, box and realize how much, A, athletic trainers are probably more respected than we actually realize because it's only in our world that we have these issues. You know, uh, when I travel um, to these different places, I travel, I've been a Fulbright scholar in Rwanda. I've been a visiting research fellow in Australia. I do some work in Ireland. I do some work in Peru. Uh, I've got a very much of an international uh, idea. It's not athletic training per se, but I call myself an athletic training evangelist. You know, everywhere I go, I'm there to do leadership coaching and leadership consulting, but I introduce myself and talk about, I use my ATC credential. I'm an athletic trainer. And they just look at me and be like, oh, sweet. Athletic trainers in the, from the United States are also great leaders. And, and, you know, you put the, and they don't know any different because athletic training's not anywhere else. And all you have to do is explain for a second what you do. Um, and they're like, oh, good. Well, cool. And, and this guy's here and he's got these credentials and these backgrounds and it puts a very good face, a very good name on athletic training. And, and, and I say that because it's really, like I said, the identity crisis that we have is really only our own identity crisis. We need part of leadership is us stepping up to the plate, knowing what we can do, knowing how we can perform, knowing what we can contribute, being confident in our skills and abilities. Um, be they the clinical skills or non-clinical skills. You know, I'm a a big proponent of the phrase, you know, using non-clinical skills that have clinical significance. And I think that's what leadership is. Leadership for athletic training is a non-clinical skill that has clinical significance. And we have to understand that. And that's one of the things I think 
we tend to miss at times. And that's where this domain five task one item S really becomes important is do we believe that or not? And if we do, then again, I think we're obligated as professionals and as educators, as clinicians and whatever your role is to find a way to develop that capacity. And, uh, is there room in the, in the professional entry-level education for that? Um, there has to be. I mean, there's not. So the answer is no, there's not. But sure. they're also, you know, again, put your money where your mouth is. Do we believe it or not? So there needs to be. So the answer to your question, I think, is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, yes, we need to begin to introduce it. Because here's what I also know is leadership uh, in the rest of the world is not necessarily an entry-level skill, especially in a VUCA world. We are in a, a crazy, neat time. I know it's crazy, um, but it also affords many opportunities. And even before the pandemic hit, uh, people were talking about, and it's a very popular uh, term called VUCA, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And there, the, there is a, a litany of professional literature and scholarly literature on the VUCA world and navigating and living in a VUCA mindset. And in fact, I write about it in my book on contextual intelligence. Uh, lots of people have written about, like I said, when I mean lit litany, I mean literally tens of thousands of pieces of literature, sure. both professional and scholarly on this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous new norm that we're in. The neat thing about that is when you're trying to navigate a VUCA world, then things like experience, things like uh, that are common terms kind of shift their meaning. So we all know experience is important, but experience takes on a completely different value in a VUCA world versus a stable world. In a stable world, VUCA, uh, the importance of, of experience is, is rooted in been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, do what I do because I've proven it successful in the past. And it becomes part of a procedure, part of a norm, very mm -hmm. much a transactional behavior and from a management perspective. But VUCA turns that upside down. VUCA flips that all around. And now experience, albeit still important, is important for a completely different reason. And the, the example I would give was just Think about the problems you face. If a problem that you're facing is a new problem, a problem that truly has never been seen before, and the environment is shifting so quickly, uh, like it does in a VUCA world, then experience is always lagging behind. In other words, I could have 27 years of experience and I could be working with a colleague who we just hired who just passes BOC two weeks ago, mm -hmm. you know, and we're trying to solve a problem uh, that's never been seen before, then right. what value is my experience? And in fact, what the research is very clear on is I'm probably less likely to add value to that situation because my experience is actually actually biasing what I can see, causing me to be myopic. And I'm actually looking for examples of similar things. And I'm not taking the whole picture in where the novice right next to me can see way more than I can see because they're looking at everything because it's all overwhelming. But they get more insight from that. And the chances are the, the probability is they're going to be able to solve the problem more efficiently and quicker than I probably even can. So when we're dealing in this VUCA world, we've got to understand that. So, so I say that to back to your original question of when do we teach leadership? Well, we've got to stop thinking of leadership as an advanced practice skill. Sure. Leadership is actually can be introduced at the entry level. It is an entry level skill. Now, experience refines that, hones that, develops that. Uh, but we can't just think of leadership as something you start um, later on. The other thing that I think is a real problem uh, with, with it is, is this idea that leadership is reserved for um, service to the profession, you know, service to your state association, service to your district, service to the NATA. Now it is that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. I do that. I serve at my state level, my district level, the national level. I love it. It's very enriching for me. Um, it's absolutely rewarding, all those things. But if we think and only think about that's all leadership is, is giving back to AT and finding places 
uh, where I can serve in AT, then we're missing something. And, and that's part of our identity crisis, actually, is we need ATs out there who are volunteering and serving and leading outside of AT traditional roles and functions so that everybody else can recognize and see how awesome ATs are and the, what they can actually uh, add to the community. Uh, so I think those are two, two critical issues that we need to really understand. So where can we start teaching these things? Well, it starts an entry level with small uh, introductions, because again, you can't, do, I mean, it's, it, it, if you can do it, uh, but it's unlikely you're going to be able to get a transformational leadership and athletic training course Right. You know, dedicated course in your in your entry level professional program. So you should work it in when you can, both in the clinical immersion experiences. You know, don't stop. Here's an example. Stop protecting your students from exposure to angry coaches. You know, that frustrates me more than anything else. I remember a few years ago at the NATA convention, I was invited to do a feature presentation on transformational leadership. And I overheard a conversation uh, in the hallway right before I walked on the stage. So it was like on a soapbox in my mind, but, and it stuck in my mind. And I was overheard this conversation of these bunch of preceptors talking about how their biggest frustration is trying to protect the students from interactions with, with coaches who were upset and angry and how they wouldn't let them give the coaches reports and wouldn't let them do this. And when it came to those types of things, they did it because they didn't feel the student was equipped and ready. I was like, Oh my God, for the love of God, don't do that. That's the worst thing you can do. Sure. Let them be exposed to those kinds of things and then debrief them afterwards and coach them and train them and, and, and actually take those moments and use them as, as teaching moments. And, and stop trying to protect them from those things. That's exactly what they need exposure to. And uh, at any rate, so that's my soapbox part on that. So start there, introduce it at there, but then obviously there needs to be professional uh, continuing education, professional development opportunities. So it really is the whole spectrum. It's both formal education, informal education, curricular activities, co-curricular and extracurricular activities, both in the profession serving and out of the profession serving. And all of those things, I think, makes an athletic training, uh, trainer better and athletic training better. Well said. <laughs> so I can rant. I can go on rants really easy, Joe. No, you're all good. Uh, I'm I'm all for if we get to the point where we need to do a part two. I'm I'm not going to argue about it. Um, I did want to get into contextual intelligence, and obviously, as you've referenced your book on it, I have not read it yet, but I have every intention to. Um, Just because you asked, I have a copy to show everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, navigating, you know, it's context, how thinking in 3D. So 3D thinking is really the neat piece here um, that I'm proud of uh, and how it can help resolve complexity, uncertainty and ambiguity, which is which is really kind of a, a thing. The neat thing about this book. So this is not an athletic training book. It's, but it's purely based on athletic training research sure. and my tile, tire sample that it came from was just studying how athletic trainers. This is kind of a, a spinoff from my dissertation, actually where I looked at and explored what leadership behaviors do athletic trainers demonstrate or exhibit when their environment is shifted or changed. Mm -hmm. So they get promoted, they get demoted, they change industries, they change jobs, they change states, whatever it is. What are the leadership behaviors? Now, we obviously know there's all kinds of skills that they take with them, clinical skills, et cetera, that they're going to use across the board. But I wanted to know what are the non-clinical leadership skills that they would use to be successful when they, when they were um, disrupted, you know, uh, when their life was disrupted, what did they use? And I was able to identify a list of things and I won't get into my dissertation. Uh, that was over a decade ago. Um, but um but from that, I was able to discover this construct um, called, that I be, come to call contextual intelligence. And there are some, some specific behaviors, you know, all, all those behaviors that I found that athletic trainers use when they transition settings, there was 49 of them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you did a factor analysis on those 49 to see if there's constructs within them. And that all happened. And we did all that. And we actually came up with six major constructs. Well, I had one construct 
that just didn't fit the literature, the existing literature. And of course, you know, when you're doing a dissertation, you need to fill in gaps and you need to find how it supports existing. And no one's really interested in, in this side finding that doesn't fit anywhere or tie into anything else. Well, I had one of those. I had five of the behaviors fit really well into the existing body of knowledge. So from that, that's why I've written uh, different textbooks and different things on the framework of leadership within athletic training and all that. But I had this miscellaneous group of factors uh, that didn't seem to fit. And so I had an, a choice there and, and uh, it was a hard choice, actually, believe it or not, is, is you know, how, what do I do with these leftover, this leftover generic construct? Conventional wisdom would have been to, you know, just broaden the Egan values of my, of my factor analysis and, you know, and broaden them up and see if these 12 remaining factors could be fit into these other things with a little bit lower, um, uh, a little bit lower uh, involvement, uh, but still able to make the case that they fit, you know, so cherry pick them and put them in there. I could have done that. That's probably what most people would have done, but I decided, you know what? No, I think this might be something new. So I decided to call this thing contextual intelligence and these, these 12 behaviors. Um, and I, and so that's what I did. I went against the wishes of my uh, advisory board uh, committee. Um, yep. Uh, and it wasn't a horrible thing. It's not doesn't sound as bad as it was. It was a conversation we had. Like, you could do what you want, but just be prepared to address these other issues if you decide sure. to do that, because you're going to have some. And so I decided to do that. And I did the extra work. And uh, boy, did that pay out for me. I mean, I, I am the most blessed person on the planet when it comes to that. Turns out that it's a, a real construct. We've done follow-up research, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I wrote this book. Uh, this book on those 12 behaviors and what CI is. This book actually won Leadership Book of the Year Award for Innovation and Cutting Edge Perspective uh, back in 2013. Uh, this is the second revised edition. The first edition, uh, I self-published. You know, I'm at Kinko's making copies. It sold thousands of copies. I mean, and, and I get calls from from Fortune 500 companies now to do consulting on contextual intelligence. And it's just been a crazy whirlwind ride for me. But, but CI is ultimately about developing the skills that you need to have to navigate the disruptions of life, all coming from what athletic trainers said they did when their life was disrupted. Sure. And that's really, and I even, when I had my first big uh, Fortune 50 company, huge multinational company, he called me, cold called me. I mean, on the phone, it's like, is this Dr. Cooch? You know, we would, we would like you to come speak to our company, uh, the global headquarters, uh, on this paper that I read and some other journal article that I wrote on contextual intelligence, and yep. and the rest is kind of history. And and they're like, you need to write a book, and you need to develop a profile, and you need to do this, and and they kind of just snowballed from there. And and it's a crazy story. It's like a three beer story. So you know, you'll have to buy me a couple of beers next time. I could tell you the whole story, but it's a, it's a crazy funny story too. Because I hear I am an athletic trainer. You know, my taping skills are at the pinnacle that they're going to be. I'm great, but I've never done a business meeting before. And here I am going down to this a Fortune 50 company, their global headquarters, the division that hired me within the company is a $16 billion revenue division within the larger company. So this is a huge company. If right. I said the name, everybody would know it. And you have stuff in your house from them. I can look in your background. You've got stuff from them just already, just in your back. I mean, so it's a huge um, company. They take me in. Uh, Joel, this is cloak and dagger stuff like you wouldn't believe. We're going to the executive C-suite kind of area. I'm an athletic trainer. I, I mean, the car I drove down in, my, my driver's side mirror was zip tied onto the car. You know, my passenger side door handle was, was broken off. You had to put your hand through the window to open it from the inside. This sure. is what I'm driving down in. They put me in the executive parking garage next to the Bentleys and the Rolls Royces. Yeah. And the Lamborghinis. I'm not kidding, you know, and it's just, it's just crazy. Here I am. I am literally shaking. You know, it's, it's a, it's a retinal eye scan security to get into the C-suite oh, kind of thing. And so I'm standing there these, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm an athletic trainer. I didn't know this world existed. I just thought it was movie stuff, you know, sure. and they're asking me about how they can be a better company and a better organization on this research I did on 161 athletic trainers. 
<laughs> you know, and this concept of contextual intelligence, which they really resonated with them and they really loved. And they just, and I even said, you know, this is kind of a, I even, I, you know, I'm trying to be honest because, because ethics is a big part of leadership, a big part of us as athletic trainers. So I'm being as honest and forthright with them as I can. It's like, well, this is, this is real. This is the same. Here's what I did. You know, I'm just an athletic trainer. And the guy stops me and he's like, listen, people are people. What I read is, is not uh, athletic training, whatever that is thing. This is, this is, this is about, I recognize here, you hit a heart of, of people in general. So it doesn't matter to me you know, this kind of stuff. And then this whole world just opened to me that I didn't know existed. That's awesome. So that led to a consulting contract. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually make more money consulting than I can on my whole annual salary. Yeah. You know, is that what blew my mind? It's like, there's actually people out there with money, you know, and um, who, who are willing to pay for it for leaders and for leadership training and development. And I'm, I'm serious when I said earlier on, there's few people on the planet that are as prepared to handle the, the, the VUCA world as athletic trainers are. I mean, think about our training, our development, what we yep. do. I mean, our whole life is the emergency action plan and prepping for an unexpected event, right? So why can't we take that skill set, that mindset that goes with that skill set and transfer it over to add value and meaning to our community outside of how efficiently you can get the EMS there and how efficiently you can take care of this. Now that's important. And obviously that's what we're being paid to do. That's our job. But there is some stuff in that, in our culture, in our DNA as athletic trainers that transitions over into the world right now that needs the kind of thinking and the kind of skill set that athletic trainers have. And, and that's all I'm doing. And that's why I say I'm an evangelist for AT. I'm doing a lot of work outside of AT. And in fact, I have some good colleagues and friends who give me a hard time of no one knows you're doing this stuff. You know, you should be in the Hall of Fame and you should be doing this and you should be doing that. Nobody knows. Oh my, it's like, I, you know, that's not my concern. Right. You know, I'm just trying to do my job and add value to the community I'm in, the opportunities that I have. Um, and what's being presented to me. And that's really what I'm about. It's not about that other stuff. I just know that we can do this if we would get over our own selves and over our own identity crisis and understand that we have value that we can add. And the world needs not just athletic training in the clinical sense, the world needs the mindset that athletic trainers often bring um, to, to their communities. And, and that's where contextual intelligence comes in. These skill sets that we use are transferable across professional and personal boundaries. And that's, so the contextual intelligence piece is all about recognizing the environment that you are in, whether it's an in-work environment or out-of-work environment, and recognize that as athletic trainers, with the skill set that we have, we can add value to those, all of those settings. We just have to recognize when the environment has shifted and when the environment has changed which is something we can learn. Now, like I was saying earlier, some people are way better at that than others, but, um, but, but we can all learn to do that better. And that's what contextual intelligence is ultimately about, reading the environment so that I know what, what skill set I need to bring to this situation to make an improvement. I think that's the thing that was the most interesting thing for me, just in reading that article on it and then just thinking about the concept that I accidentally kept referring to it before I sent this to you, the as contextual leadership, which right. I think almost, I mean, it fits just right along with it, especially along with what you were saying about transformational leadership and how that all applies. And yeah, I, I'm probably going to go and buy the book right as soon as we get off this call, <laughs> just so I can get it to the house. You know, uh, I love this podcast stuff because, you know, when I do these talks for the NATA in my state uh, and district, you have to do this non-compete, non-conflict of interest disclaimer slide. So I'm always very hesitant about talking about my research and my writing because that's, you know, this isn't an academic book. It's a professional book. So it's proprietary. Sure. You know, I, I want to sell as many of these as I can because it helps pay the mortgage kind of thing. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so if that's a conflict of interest or not, I don't know. But um, but I will say this is being on a podcast like this, I, I'm going to market the heck out of it. <laughs> like we said, the whole point of this show is to right. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, 
So I guess I had this on there as kind of like one of the big questions, and it probably answers a couple of the other ones. Um, and you've touched on it a little bit in terms of you know teaching it in the in in school, and then this kind of long term, you know, it, it not just a weekend course, and all of a sudden you've got it. You're a leader, and right. you, got, right. you know it's, it's everything. So you've referenced a couple times within the profession and our identity crisis and, you know, what is leadership within it? I've had some interesting discussions with people on social media and whatnot around, you know, we, sometimes it seems like we can't get out of our own way as a profession. You know, we're advocating for one thing yet we post these jobs and different things that it just, it doesn't, you know, we're arguing about the PTs and, you know, what they're doing to us yet. Here we are, you know, trying to hire somebody for eight fifty an hour. Basically, that's not a internship in quote. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Actually, yeah. go ahead. No, and just that's kind of where you know I've kind of come back, and it's like, well, that we're almost, we're our own worst enemy, and yeah. a lot of regards when we come to that. And different. I don't pretend to know everybody's the situation at different institutions, but you can see it for some of the larger ones where. If it's truly an internship to make somebody better to, for a year to get them on to the next thing, exactly. okay, let's have a conversation. But knowing from my experience, which I wouldn't trade for the world in right. hindsight, but man, I'd have a hard time doing that to somebody now, knowing the amount of hours I were put in for the amount of money I was yep. being paid. Um, where do you see, you know, as a profession, how do we develop more leaders or potentially try and make that better. And I know that's a huge question, but it is. It for is. you, you know, that it's dove, you know, so far into this, if you had some things, you know, at least yeah. for some people to just think about, you know, and internally reflect, like, am I doing right, doing it right? Well, here's here's right. kind of what I would say to that is, is we have to understand that no leadership journey is the same. And that's, I think, part of the problem that we're having is we are trying to create a leadership track. You know, we're trying to create a leadership uh, milestones along the way. And, and, and that's why we get caught up with so much what we get caught. Well, if you're going to be a leader, then you need to volunteer here. If you're going to be a leader, then you need to do this. And, and those are milestones and those are important. But we have to understand that everyone's track, everyone's journey is different. So creating a pipeline of leadership development is kind of kind of counterproductive as well because then we're trying to force everyone into a certain leadership mold. I'm a perfect example of that. I consider myself a leader, but I I again very little of what I and I consider myself a leader in athletic training, by the way, but very little of my activity percentage wise. Yeah, I serve on the international committee. Yeah, I'm a um, um, senior associate editor for the athletic training education journal. So I do have some leadership roles and things like that, but the percentage wise of time spent versus what I'm, it's very small. I'm doing way, way more outside of athletic training to promote and advance athletic training than I am inside. And that's just counterintuitive. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not, so my pipeline has been completely different. My journey, I also involves a lot of ministry in my background. I grew up in a pastor's house and my dad was a pastor. So I have my background is a lot of church leadership, church development. A lot of what I've learned and understood is leading and managing congregations you know, and, and that's a big part of my history and my identity, my, you know, my ontological development. I love to use the word, you know, ontology and the essence of being, you know, this is leadership is very much an ontological thing. We have to understand that everyone's leadership identity is different. And, and we, we recognize it when we say things like, well, there's so many definitions of leadership, right? I mean, uh, every there's enough definitions of leadership out there for every person that talks about leadership. I mean, there's, so there's no agreement on that definition. Here's here's the irony, and we talk about that, and we openly embrace the fact that well, leadership is such a diverse thing. It's such it's so widely defined. Um, but yet we're going to create a pipeline that gets everybody to be a leader and like, well, wait a second. If you, the second you do that, then you're forcing everyone into a certain single definition of a thing that you just said can't be defined or isn't agreed upon. Right. You know, so it cre- it's a, it's kind of an oxymoron. It's counterintuitive what we're doing. So, so I guess the first step is, is owning the fact that leadership is 
extremely diverse and how we define it, how we experience it, how we explain it, what we expect from it. I mean, you ask any person, I give this example a lot. If, if we were all to go out and watch a bunch of kids playing on the playground, right? Um, all of us with all of our different experiences and backgrounds could co would come back from that. And having observed these kids for, let's say, several days, we would probably be able to all identify the, 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 the people who would be the leaders in that group, you know, and even predict in five years from now, we think X, Y, and Z will be, you know, uh, leaders. And we would probably all be right in picking the kids that we pick. The interesting part about that is when we debriefed ourselves, it would be very, it, it would, it would happen like this. We would all have different reasons for a pick, pick them. Sure. You know, even though we identified, so we recognize it when we see it, we just don't know how to explain it when we're asked to explain it. And that's the issue with leadership. So, you know, part of the issue I think we're struggling with is the leadership development pipeline that we talk about needs to be there. But then how do we do that, allowing for the diversity of experiences that forms leadership? Because things that aren't leadership things actually, prob actually probably, I don't know if I can say it like that, probably <laughs> contribute significantly to leadership formation. So we just have no idea how people process, how people organize information, how they make meaning from their experiences. Something I write about in my book quite a bit called Synchronicity uh, is how we make meaning from the experiences that we've had. Mm -hmm. And in order, that's why contextual intelligence is such a novel thing. And actually, when I asked the, the awards committee years ago why it, why it won the award, you know, it's because, you know, these, it's, these, it's a leadership-based framework, but it allows for a diversity of input. So again, innovation and cutting edge perspective is like, listen, you know, not being a, being, running a newspaper, you know, when I was a kid, the big job to have was newspaper delivery. I mean, that's not a thing anymore, but um, you know, it's, you know, that could be a very formative leadership experience. And then for another kid who was also a newspaper delivery boy, the same experience could have totally pushed them away from leadership because of one altercation with a client sure. and how one person responded, another person responded. We've got to understand that those moments add significantly more meaning than we realize that they do. And we have to be able to go back and uncover those experiences, evaluate uh, where our tacit knowledge comes from. Um, anyways, I don't want to get into all that you know, high stuff, but there, the pipeline thing is an important thing, but we have to allow multiple streams of input uh, and formation development in order for it to, to manifest the way we want. And when we start pumping kids into, we do it with sport, right? Yep. I mean, think about with sport, we have these training leagues and these advanced leagues and all this kind of stuff. We put our kids into them and it's a pipeline to be advanced. And sometimes we miss really good athletes because we put all the eight-year-olds on the team together, right? Realizing that they develop at totally different ages. And, and, you know, chronological age versus biological age. And somebody gets labeled a great athlete because, well, they're eight years old, uh, but they're going to turn nine tomorrow. So yeah. they're really nine versus an eight-year-old who turned eight yesterday, who's sure. really just seven plus one, but because they're eight yesterday. And you got these two kids competing on the same team for this elite level spot. And one's literally a year older, a year stronger, a year smarter, a year, but we classify them as eight-year-olds. One gets labeled as really good. One gets labeled as average. So this one gets put on the elite team. This one gets put on uh, the B team or the JV team. And now the Pygmalion effect kicks in or the self-fulfilling prophecy kicks in. I start believing I'm better and then I get better competition. I get better coaching. And then when I'm 20, I actually am better, but not because I was born better, but because I had different training and development. Sure. And, and, and then we do the same thing with leadership. We recognize somebody as a leadership potential or capacity, and we forget that everybody develops and evolves at different levels, different paces, different speeds. And, and we have to account for that in our leadership training. And right now, I don't see that as happening, which is why there might be a dearth of leadership in athletic training. 
because people who want to volunteer don't have opportunities to volunteer or they did once and they didn't do too well. They had a rough go of it and they just weren't ready yet. And so there's all kinds of things like that. So uh, that's just uh, a long answer uh, to, uh, to a lot of different issues that could be part of the problem. Yeah, like I said, it is such a big question. And I, I think one, I just keep coming back to your book title and just even the things we were saying, you know, the contextual part of it. And like, you know, I think I've, I've adopted it and I always claim I stole it from Stu McGill, the PhD, you know, back specialist. And everybody, every time somebody try and ask him a relatively generic question, he would always come back with, well, it depends because yeah. it does. And it, it and I think I, there's so many I say the same thing to my students. I tell them all the time, the best answer to every question you can get asked is it depends. Now, yeah. if, you, if you say it depends, then you better have a rationale. Absolutely. Don't just say it depends and that's the end. But it's really true. And that's the contextual nature of, of, of leadership, of navigating complex environments is the answer. I mean, think about what complexity is. I use this metaphor a lot of, of Plato. A complex environment is really when you have all these different colors of Play-Doh and you mix them together, right? And then all of a sudden you've got this new color or whatever, and you want to take the red Play-Doh back out, but it's mixed in there. It's all still there, but I can't get the red Play-Doh back out. You know, that's, so the answer, you know, so when you say, what color is that? Well, the answer is it depends, you know, there's a lot going in there. So I've got to be able to address all the different variables or facets to that question. So the challenge isn't really knowing the right answer. That's the other thing, by the way, you bring up a good point uh, of a VUCA world. I talked about experience a little while ago about how VUCA totally disrupts the concept of experience. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. Um, it disrupts the concept of knowledge. It dis disrupts the concept of, of what we think we know about certain, certain things. And, and if we, we've got to be able to answer the question, you know, well, it depends. And here's what it depends on. Cause I have to identify all the different variables that have gone into this particular situation and realizing that every time I shift environments, shift personnels, talk to a different person, I'm holding a different ball of Play-Doh with a totally different mixture of colors and I've got to be able to transition between all this and recognize and identify uh, the colors that are in this one uh, so that I know what, how to behave, you know, and I call it the RKA process, recognize, know, and adjust. You have to recognize your environment has just shifted. After you recognize it's shifted, then you've got the most important variable in every new environment is identifying what's now deemed as important. See, we, we look at a shift in environment and we don't know what to do with a new environment because we're not looking for the right thing. So, for example, most of the time an environment shifts, right? Uh, context changes. You're in the athletic training room interacting with your colleagues and now you're on the sidelines interacting with your colleagues. They're still your colleagues, right? You're still buddies and chums and all that kind of stuff. But the environment is different. Therefore, my behavior must be different. What I can say to my colleagues in the athletic training room and how we can goof around and interact are completely different than on the sidelines during an event, right? Even though the relationship's the same, the context has changed. And, and I have to recognize that in this different context, what's important here is different than what's important there. See, most of us, the easy part is recognizing that the environment has just shifted or changed in some way. All of us can do that. The, challenging, the challenge is once we've identified the shift in the environment, then uh, we start looking, we, we, we act as if it didn't shift. We just think, oh, it's good enough to know, okay, I'm in a different situation. Well, what you need to be asking yourself is when the environment shifts or after you recognize that it shifts, the first thing you need to ask is what is the new metric of success? What is now important that wasn't important before or how did the priorities of what's important shift? So the first question I always ask and I encourage the people who I mentor and coach to ask is when you recognize your environment has shifted, what's now the most important thing in that environment that you are being assessed against? And professionalism is always important. But it's lower on the priority list that when you're in the athletic training room, chumming around between practice, after practice. When you're on the sidelines, pri the priority of professionalism 
increases. It's now more important than it was. It's not that it's not important. Right. It's just, it's shifted. And if we fail to recognize that shift, we're going to fail. We're not going to be successful. Um, another example outside of athletic training is communication. Communication is always important, right? But the value shifts and how, how it's measured shifts. So when I'm at work and I'm communicating with my students, with my colleagues, the, the um, communication is transacted and there's a certain expectation of it there, right? I use the analogy of I transact communication currency in dollars, you know, U.S. dollars at work. And then I come home and I'm interacting with my wife and my family. Guess what? My wife doesn't take dollars, communication dollars. Uh, she wants euros, you know, and she wants something else. And if I don't have euros to give her and I try to use the same currency that you, that I use at work with her at home, it's not going to work. Because I found out a long time ago, she doesn't like to be talked to like she's one of my students. Sure. You know, but I think, hey, this is working for me in this environment. In fact, I would bring home, I used to, you know, it's a joke in our house now. I'd bring home my early teaching evaluation and say, honey, guess who's a good communicator? My students and my colleagues, my peer evaluations, they all say one of my strengths is good communication. You think, and I'd come home and show that to her. She laughs out loud. And she says, dude, you suck at communicating. Who are you living with? And I realized, well, how can that be? Well, it was a currency issue. It was an RKA. It's, it's a, it was a contextual bias I was having. I was thinking, well, this is working for me in this space. Yep. Well, because it works for me in this space, I want to apply it across the board. You yep. can't do that. I've got to recognize when I come home, the environment is shifted. The context is switched. And it's not enough just to know that. You've got to now know, well, what's important? So, well, communication is important. That's one of those things that's always important. But it's being measured differently here than it was there. And we've got to learn that. That's why I think it's so strange that athletic trainers tend to demonstrate their leadership behaviors with a much higher frequency inside the context of the profession and their job. And then outside of it, they don't. And that's a big problem. And we've got to learn to do that. So that RKA process, recognize its shift, then um, know what the new metric of success is, and then the A is adjust. And then once you recognize this new metric of, realize what this new metric of success is, now you've got to adjust your behavior accordingly to be able to provide whatever it is you're being assessed against. So in other words, carrying multiple currencies. I now have learned I've got to carry dollars and euros, at least those two. Sure. And what I am finding out is when I'm talking to other people in other contexts, they don't want dollars or euros. They want francs and pounds and, and yen and pesos. And I've got to carry all those currencies uh, because every context I'm in requires a different currency. Uh, that's what leaders do better than people who aren't leaders. Yeah, uh, I think that's the perfect way to, to sum that up. Um, I think in that round two, especially after I purchase your book and read it so I can ask more pointed questions, would be in order. But um, just to be respectful of your time, unless there's something that you really want to cover right this second, um, we can move into uh, the athletic training chat questions. Where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? You know, athletic training is, it's, I think we've done really well over our history. So I'm old enough and been in athletic training long enough to see several different evolutions of athletic training, education reform, clinical practice acts, all these kinds of things. And one of the things that I think um, it needs to, obviously we're talking about specializations. Uh, we've got DATs out there. I mean, when I, when I got into the athletic training gig, I remember talking about doctorates in athletic training as a fantasy pipeline. And, and I, I won't mention any names, but um, esteemed colleagues of ours in the profession told me to my face, I actually have kind of cited in my dissertation as a personal communication that doctorates in athletic training uh, should never happen and they'll happen over my dead bodies. And these are Hall of Famers, you know. Now, Grant, this was over two decades ago and things have changed. Um, but, 
and ideas and perceptions have changed. You know, Peter Drucker talks about the seven drivers of innovation, uh, one of which are changes in perception, changes in meaning, things like that. And this certainly has happened. Athletic training has evolved and perceptions has changed. So now we actually have doctorates in athletic training and all that. And I th actually think one of the best spaces to introduce the stuff we're talking about are in these doctoral of athletic training types of sure. programs. And, uh, and, and, and different things because we, because it's, we can create what we need to create. And I, I think that's one of the things that we really need to be, to be thinking about the profession, I think needs to evolve to the place where it's impactful outside of the healthcare space. Now I'm not saying we step out and I know that could be, all right, that could, could bring up a, a, a glut of emails and texts and tweets and stuff. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we practice outside of our scope of practice. I'm not implying scope of practice, clinical things at all here. I mean, from the non-clinical side of things, athletic training needs to be able to put our leadership skills, our problem solving skills, our, these non-clinical skills, um, to, to work, to use outside of the traditional healthcare space, I think, and, and talk about that in these other, other environments. I think when we do that, the specializations will add more, will have more value. The advanced education will have more value. Uh, athletic trainers will have more value uh, outside in the community, in our local communities. And that's where I think, you know, the high schools know how valuable we are. Uh, many hospitals and clinics and the athletes know how valuable we are, but the rest of the world needs to know that. I mean, we don't, nurses and physicians don't encounter this, you know, their hospitals and their patients know how valuable they are, but also the community knows how valuable they are. And that's what's missing in athletic training. And, and I think that's important for us to understand. And that's where I would hope to see the evolution goes. And that's where my effort is being spent. My time is being spent in helping that evolution uh, towards a better athletic training future. I like it. Uh, what advice would you give yourself as a young athletic trainer if you could go back and if you could set that context of when in your career that would be? So, you know, I would, I would tell myself, don't be so scared, you know, um, don't be so scared. Don't be so nervous. Everything's going to work out. You know, that's the value of experience. You know, sure. uh, we talked about experience changing and in a VUCA world experience, isn't been there, done that experience is standing next to someone who's scared and saying, uh, don't worry about the mistake. The sun's going to come up tomorrow, you know, kind of a thing. The sun's still going to come up tomorrow and everything's going to eventually be okay. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I was, I like all students was absolutely panicked about taking that darn BOC exam. Yep. You know, I would tell myself, you know, just like you worry about your GPA, you know, it's like, I got to get the grades and GPA. No one has asked me about my GPA, my grades. How many times well, I, was I in a cohort that passed it the first time and part of my class? No one has asked me that in sure. 25 years. You know, and, and I would realize, I know it's important. And I know at that stage in the development, that's a metric and a milestone. I'm yep. not arguing that, yep. but I would go back and tell myself, stop worrying about the stupid stuff. Sure. You're going to be a good athletic trainer. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to be okay. You know, you're going to learn some neat things and, and the whole thing of learning from failure and how actually the life lessons, I actually keep a list I have right here pinned to my wall. You know, I keep a running list of all what I call Matt Kutz's watershed moments. Okay. You know, and, uh, and I go back and I re I'm a big proponent of understanding, taking back our hindsight and remembering the past appropriately. Sure. And so going back and, and doing those kinds of things, telling myself, it's going to be okay. You're going to mess that one up really bad, but don't worry. It's not, doesn't mean you're a bad athletic trainer. doesn't mean you're, you're don't have the skills. Everybody makes mistakes. So I would tell myself, don't worry about that stuff so much and, and just enjoy the moment because it's the moment that you truly learn the things that you need to learn. And, and so pay more, be more contextually intelligent, you know, pay more attention to all the stuff that's going on instead of being so myopic. And that's, I think a critical lesson for us to get into. And it's hard because we're always told, well, you can't do this next thing until this is done. So we become myopic yep. and think about a BOC exam and we start studying for the exam instead of studying to be a good athletic trainer. Sure. And you know what? So what it takes you three times to take it, 
And I know this is not popular. So if the KD folks are listening and the BOC folks are listening, I'm sorry. But, uh, but you know, it's some of, the, some of the best athletic trainers took three or four times to pass that darn exam. Yep. You know, so I pass it on the first time, though. <laughs> Same here. But I was very nervous about it. I was panicked time. about it. But it caused me other, and I guess my point is, my overemphasis, my overfocus on that, I missed some important neat stuff. Absolutely, yep. You know? Absolutely. Uh, what has been one of the most influential resources you have found in your career? People. Without a doubt, without a question, it's the athletic trainers who have gone before me. And, yep. I, and I, that's not a cliche answer for me. I mean that with all of my heart. Um, and I, I'm actually getting, I feel myself getting a little weepy here. So, <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm very serious when I say the people, the athletic trainers that have gone before me, the mentors, and not just my personal mentors. I am one who believes firmly in, in owning the, the valuable experiences of other people. So I talk to colleagues who I might have not had a mentor, but I have a friend who had a great mentor. I ask them, what did they teach you? You know, and I take those and I own those as my own. Yeah, I didn't know so-and-so the way you knew them, um, but you did. And I can glean from that vicariously. And it's actually science has a word for that. It's called analogical inference or analogical reasoning. And that's really vicarious mentoring. So I, I, I mean that the people in my life, the value, the conversations, and here's what's neat about that is, is on a more personal level on the ones that you do have connections with personal connections with, I have learned more about athletic training from non-athletic training conversations sure. with these mentors than actual formal um, uh, learning moments. Yeah, and oh. I think that's critical, and that's that's what I really think is has added the value to my life is the ability and the willingness to go back to those moments and rehearse those correctly with the input from other vantage points. Because I suffer like everybody else from a huge degree of hindsight bias. So in order to really draw the correct information from that past encounter, which is what I talk about in my book on hindsight and the 3D thinking, the 3D thinking is hindsight, insight, and foresight, understanding the past, present, and future. But when you go back to that, I think you need to have input from other people to help you filter through the hindsight bias. And that's what I've learned to do and recognize that it was the non-athletic training conversations that added the most value to my athletic training career from the people who have gone before me. And I honor that legacy as much as I can. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. And I've picked up things from random coaches that, you know, I've just been right. coaching longer than I've been alive and yep. seen some stuff and it's okay to learn from them. Absolutely. Um, and if they don't have a medical degree, but um, if you could change or eliminate one thing, a modality, a common practice, a mindset, whatever you choose it to be in the profession of athletic training, what would it be? So one of the things that frustrates me about where we've come is this, is like I said before, and I kind of alluded to this already is forcing the leadership pipeline mold into, into this thing. I think we have a mindset of leadership that is incredibly narrow. And, and if I could go back and change anything about athletic training, it would be to broaden the lens or, or the scope of how we define and describe leadership. Perfect. And simply complex i feel like yeah it, it, it's a, that could we unpack that for a while yeah yeah i, I i'd be all all for that um at some point um last one is what does being an athletic trainer mean to you and i i know we've covered it kind of holistically yeah. in this conversation but if you could really drill it down um again big question not an easy answer you know, for me, and, and it's at being an athletic trainer means adding value to people's lives. I mean, that's, that's where my, my, my space is on that. My head space is on that. And, and I like that way to phrase it because it includes, it, it, it includes and doesn't have to include my clinical skills. Mm -hmm. As an athletic trainer, I've learned things again, about hand, handling chaos, right? K, I believe chaos is the package that your potential arrives in. And athletic training trains us to handle chaos as an opportunity 
to do something better. And uh, so that I believe if I can spread that message, I can add value to people's lives. And for me, being an athletic trainer is about adding value to people's lives, whether that means helping them diagnose where their knee pain is coming from. And I can do that too. And I can do that well. You know, I can evaluate a knee and a shoulder and whatever, and I can add value to them. Uh, here's what you need to do to do that. To You've got a loss of range of motion. I've got some things that can you can do that will add value to the quality of your life. You know, disablement models and all that and where we have a functional impairment, a limitation, whether it's social, all these things. You know, that's all I can add value in, in that kind of framework, but then also outside. So ultimately, being an athletic trainer is about adding value to people's lives clinically and non-clinically. Perfect. Um, if people wanted to reach out and get in touch with you, what would be the best ways to go ahead and do that? So uh, I'm not on Facebook, believe it or not. So I don't do Facebook at all. So I'm not there, but, uh, but I do tweet. So uh, at Dr. Dr. Matt Coots, M-A-T-T-K-U-T-Z. So I'm on Twitter and then I have a website and probably matthewcoots.com uh, would be the best place to reach out to me there. And, uh, and I'd love to connect with you. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, like I said, if you're up for it, I would be all for a round two to just yeah. continue to dive in, maybe a, to a more, couple more specific con structs out of your book and everything. Um, but really, really appreciate it. Love it. This is fun for me. I love it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Joel.